So, I want to start this morning by saying something that I hope we can all agree together, that truth matters. Truth matters. In the day and age that we live today, when everybody has their own truth, I want to say that truth matters, but I want to say that biblical truth matters. In John chapter 8, verses 31 and 32, Jesus said, if you hold to my teachings, you are really my disciples. Then you will know the truth, and the truth will set you free. The truth will set you free. And I don't know about you, but I worked in a jail for 14 years, and freedom is a pretty important thing. Being free, being free from the bondage of whatever it is that is holding you, to be free in Christ is the most important thing in the world. So as we enter a new year, I want to encourage you with a message of truth. I want to encourage you to see what the Lord is calling us to do as a church and how he is calling us to live. You know, I think about like New Year's resolutions, and to be honest, like I've already started to have a couple of New Year's resolutions. <clears throat> if you haven't noticed, um, I'm a big fella, and uh, so just like every year, I want to lose weight, um, I want to exercise more, um, I want to do those things. Um, uh, you know, and we also make other New Year's resolutions. We make resolutions about maybe stopping certain sins in our lives, that we want to we be better. We don't want to gossip as much and things like that. And then some of our resolutions that we make are, are these positive resolutions about, you know, reading the Bible in a year. Maybe we even buy one of those, you know, Bible in a year Bibles, or we download the app that gives us reminders every day to read our Bible every day. Who here has failed a one-year Bible reading plan? <clears throat> yep, okay. I have failed a one-year Bible reading plan more years than I have not. <laughs> I, have, I have failed the one-year Bible reading plan at least 15 times. Um, I've actually only one time in my life read the Bible from front to back. Um, I've read the complete Bible more than that, but one time front to back, and it was right after I got saved right after I, I got to know Jesus, and I was like, I want to know everything about this God who has saved me from my sins. So in eight months, I read the Bible from front to back, and I haven't been able to do it since. And I'm not committing to do it this year either. <laughs> um, so we commit to these things for a reason. We commit to these things for hope. Hope for courage, for joy, for change. We want our lives to be different. We want our lives to be better. And so we make these small commitments, hoping that fulfilling these commitments will give us the joy and the hope that we want in our lives. Unfortunately, as many of you know, week one, typically, if you decided not to eat sugar, there's some candy cane or some cookie that you know, somebody made that enters into your mouth and you've already failed your, your no sugar for a year. Um, you've already missed three days at the gym, okay? We all know how that goes. So what we actually really need in our lives, instead of resolutions, is we need resolve. We need resolve in the new life that God has given us. We know that in 2 Corinthians 5.17, it says every man in Christ is a new creation. So as this new creation, we need resolve to have a magnificent, glorious, new relationship with Jesus Christ. And we can only do that if we are resolved to know his word. The last four weeks, we talked about Advent. We talked about the arrival, hope, peace, joy, and love. 
talks about the arrival of this baby Jesus that would change the world forever. And as we looked at that, we studied 1 John, or John chapter 1. I know Pastor Robert preached on it. I preached on it. And it goes like this. In the beginning was the Word, and the Word was with God, and the Word was God. In verse 14, we see, and the Word became flesh and dwelt among us. This was a moment in history where God entered himself physically as man to change the world forever. It changed the Jewish religion into the Christian religion. It was the Jewish Messiah that had been promised for thousands of years. And now we celebrate it as the Christian religion. But we see this, we see this verse, you know, in the beginning was the Word, and the Word was with God, and the Word was God, and the Word became flesh and dwelt among us. And we go, okay, so we know that Jesus is, is the Word, because we've been told that, or we've read that. But what does this word, word, mean? Like, where does it come from, and why do we get it here? Well, see, each of the Gospels was written to different people groups. We have the Jews, the Greeks, the Romans, and then the Gospel of John was famously written to the world. So we see him call Jesus the Word here, and for the Greeks, the Greek philosophers, the logos, which is word, was the impersonal, abstract principle of reason and order in the universe. It was in some sense a creative force and also the source of wisdom. So when the Greek philosophers talked about Logos, talked about the word, they talked about this creative power, the source of wisdom and order in the universe. But it was against their like mental capacities to be able to put that thing into a human that walked on the, on the face of the earth. So John argues for Jesus being God in the flesh. That's what the Gospel of John is all about. If, you've, if you haven't ventured into reading your Bible yet, if you've accepted Jesus as your Savior, and now you're saying, where do I start? Or if you're just curious about the Christian faith, the Gospel of John is the place to start. It was written to the world. It was written to you. We can gain so much from it. But Logos was not just a Greek concept. The word of the Lord was also a significant theme throughout the Old Testament. The word of the Lord was an expression of divine power and wisdom. So when the people, the Jews, were reading the Gospel of John and they saw the, the word word, there's not a better way to say that, the word word. So just bear with me as I say the word word. When they read this, they knew that it had divine power and wisdom, that calling Jesus the word meant something huge. For the Jews, God introduced the Abrahamic covenant through his word. By his word, he gave Israel the Ten Commandments. He attended the building of Solomon's temple, revealed God to Samuel, pronounced judgment on the house of Eli, counseled Elijah, directed Israel through God's prophets, was the agent of creation through Jesus himself, his word, and revealed scripture to the prophets. So when we talk about knowing God's word, we talk about knowing the fullness of God. From the beginning, from creation through the words of Jesus, through the whole picture, the story arc of the Old Testament revealing God to his people Israel, and then the whole counsel of God, the new covenant through Christ's blood. So when we talk about knowing the word of God, we talk about knowing God. And we want to know the word of God. We want to know Jesus 
deeply and intimately. So now when we use the word, word, we mean all that Christ has revealed to us, which in his divine wisdom, he has put right here. We have to go searching nowhere else but the Holy Scriptures. You know, I, I like calling it things like Holy Scriptures instead of like Bible. Because Bible is just, it sounds like a word for something. But the Holy Scriptures give it like its definition. Like it's in this that we have everything that we need. And his divine wisdom, he gave us this. And we don't need anything else to know and understand who he is. It's a beautiful and blessed thing. 2 Timothy 3.16 and 17 says this, All Scripture is God-breathed and is useful for teaching, rebuking, correcting, and training in righteousness, so that the servant of God may be thoroughly equipped for every good work. See, the reason for the Scriptures is in the Scriptures, that we may be thoroughly equipped for every good work. And when we think that this is just a book containing words, I want to point you to this. The word here that says, that says God breathed life into the scriptures, this is this word theonoustos. Theo is God. Noustos is spirit or breath. When we look at the Old Testament, there's a Greek translation of the Old Testament. It's called the Septuagint. It uses these same words, this same idea, the same concept, Theonustos in Genesis 2, when it talks about God breathed life into Adam, into his nostrils, he gave him the breath of life, this Theonustos. So the way that Adam is raised from the dust, so the word of God is filled with the spirit of God. This is not just words. This is the spirit of our Lord contained in binding. It's an amazing gift that we have been given and for so many Christians, it sits on the shelf. One of my challenges to you this morning as we go through this is an encouragement to get into the Word of God. It is alive and active, sharper than any two-edged sword. We have with us a weapon and a giver of peace, all in one thing. It's an amazing blessing that we have. So, the truth that we have been given, this gift of God, I think that it's worth fighting for. And in 1 Timothy chapter 6, verse 12, Paul tells Timothy to fight the good fight of faith. So this morning, that's what we will talk about. He says to him, fight the good fight of faith, take hold of the eternal life to which you were called when you made your good confession in the presence of many witnesses. In the sight of God, who gives life to everything, and of Christ Jesus, who while testifying before Pontius Pilate made the good confession, this same good confession, I charge you to keep this command without spot or blame until the appearing of our Lord Jesus Christ. Paul is writing to Timothy and telling him to fight a good fight. So I, I want to dig in a little bit this morning and, and answer four questions. What kind of fight? Who are we fighting? How do we fight? Why do we fight? What, who, how, why? And I think that we'll see some, some interesting things. The first is, what kind of fight? Well, it's a noble fight. The Greek word for fight is where we get the English word agonize. It's something like, you know, if I ever say Greek words from up here, I'm probably mispronouncing it. 
uh, just because reading those things are hard, but it's like agonismo, this idea of agonizing. And, and what it is, it was used in military and sports contexts. And it had this, this idea of concentration, discipline, and extreme effort needed to win. It's the good fight of faith. It's a thing of concentration, discipline, and effort. The good fight of faith is a spiritual conflict with Satan's kingdom of darkness in which all men and women of God are called to battle. So we see fight, the verb, the agonize, and then we see the good, which is kalos, which means noble or excellent. So it's actually, it's probably better defined as noble than good probably better translated, and it is translated in some translations as noble, fight the noble fight, because what it is, is it's, it's a fight that is worthy to be fought, because it's defending the truth of Jesus, the truth of the word of God, it is a fight worthy to fight. And then the last fight, the noun, is what the fight is, and it's the fight against the enemy. And I, I want to be clear here, and this needs to be reminded so often, I think, sometimes, is we need to be reminded that the people, people, human beings, are not the enemy. Satan is the enemy. Now, are people being used by Satan? Yes. But they are not the enemy. They are to be loved to Christ, encouraged to Christ. We'll talk about this in a minute, about the gentleness that leads people to salvation. We speak the truth against the lies of the enemy. So we speak the truth against people sometimes. But they are not the enemy. They are the reason that Jesus Christ came to earth in the manger that we have been looking at the last four weeks. They are the reason that God so loved the world that he gave his only begotten son that whoever believes in him should have eternal life. So that's our goal, is to see people know Jesus as Savior. So who are we fighting? We're fighting false teachings, the false teachings of the enemy. Paul tells us in, in 1 Timothy, in the beginning of this chapter, chapter 6, in verse 3, he says, if anyone teaches a different doctrine and does not agree with the sound words of the Lord Jesus Christ and the teaching that accords with godliness, he is puffed up with conceit and understands nothing. You know, throughout history, our our world has been ravaged by some diseases. We think back to like the 14th century with the bubonic plague. It killed millions of people in Europe. Cholera, malaria. When I was growing up, it was AIDS. The recent years, COVID-19. Killed millions and millions of people over the years. But more deadly than any of those diseases is the plague of false teaching. That has afflicted the church throughout history. And while illness may kill the body, false teaching condemns the soul. So when Paul is writing here, he is writing, fight the good fight of faith. It is in response to what he has already said about false teaching in the world. We see so many of these false teachings creeping into the mainline Christian church today. And they're just working their way in. And because the church has forgotten the scriptures, because the people don't dive into the word of God, these false teachings creep in and they manipulate and pull people away from the right path with God. Some of these things that we see today are the, the prosperity gospel. 
You know, that says that you're, it's also known as the health and wealth gospel, that how much you, you know, uh, how much positive speech, faith, and donations you do or give will increase your health and your wealth. You know, you send a certain amount of money to some, you know, preacher online, and he's going to send you some holy water. That's just crystal geyser. It's not, it's probably tap water. The prosperity gospel is a false gospel. It is a false doctrine of the church. Then we see liberal theology. Now, when I say liberal, I'm not talking liberal versus conservatives and the political aspects of the world. But liberal theology is known as this. It is the approach that emphasizes a metaphorical or allegorical interpretation of Scripture. It downplays the ideas of miracles like the virgin birth and the resurrection. And it almost always doesn't consider the word of God inerrant. It always boggles my mind that there are, there are people who will take this part of Scripture as 100% true and they'll flip a few pages and say, yeah, but I don't believe that. Who are we to pick and choose the parts of the Word of the Lord that we want to believe? It all it all is effective. It is all a double-edged sword. It should pierce our bone and our marrow. And so then we have the universalists, the people who believe that everybody eventually will be a Christian. Look, I understand that one because that's my dream. Everybody would know the name of Jesus and everybody would be saved. But we just look around and we know that that is not true. We read the scriptures and we know that that is not true. You land on these false teachings when you try to reason the scriptures through your own opinions. You have opinions in your head about how things should go and how things should work in the world, and you read the scriptures, and it doesn't agree with your opinions. And you say, well, let me, I'm just not going to believe that part of the scripture. I'm not going to work with that part, and I'm going to make the scriptures aligned with my opinions. Our opinion should be shaped by scripture, not the other way around. Paul gives us some, some tools to recognize false teaching. In 1 Timothy still, verses 3 through 5, the part I just read, if anyone teaches a false doctrine that does not agree with the sound words of the Lord Jesus and the teachings that accord with godliness, he is puffed up with conceit and understands nothing. He has an unhealthy craving for controversy and for quarrels about words, which produce envy, dissension, slander, and evil suspicions and constant friction among those who are depraved in mind and deprived of the truth, imagining that godliness is a mean of gains. That verse alone, that last verse alone right there, should blow the prosperity gospel out of the water. Godliness is not a mean of gains on this earth. Now, Paul does in the very next verse says, but godliness with contentment brings great gain. And he goes on to talk about how the love of money is the root of all evil. Contentment in what God has called you to have and God has called you to do, that and godliness bring great gain. And so we see, we see a little bit about what Paul is telling Timothy to watch out for. See, Paul isn't, unlike other books in the New Testament, other epistles where Paul is, is directly going against some false teaching, okay, in 1 Timothy, he's more speaking broadly about false teachers and those who try to corrupt the church. 
And some of the things that we can recognize that he points out is the first one we said, advocacy of different doctrine. False teachers are characterized by their advocacy of doctrines that contradicts God's revelation in Scripture. They come with another revelation. And they say that their revelation is the revelation that supersedes the Scriptures. And, and a way to see this coming, when you hear, when you hear a, a pastor from the stage, from the front, when he's preaching to people, and he constantly refers to himself as God's anointed. When somebody constantly has to refer to themselves as God's anointed, it means that they are probably telling you something that they don't want to be challenged on later. Because they're going to reference scriptures that say, you know, who can come against God's anointed? Who can do this against God's anointed? So he's calling himself God's anointed so that you don't come up to him and say, but what you're saying doesn't line up with what God says. And then, and then they come at you and say, well, I'm God's anointed. Who are you to question me? And so when we see that, we worry about that. The second thing is denial of fundamental truths. False teachers often deny or distort aspects of Christian doctrine, such as the nature of God, Trinity, the person, work, or authenticity of Scripture. And the one that I think stands out the most is the lack of scriptural commitment. False teachers do not base their ministry on the Word of God. They base it on their opinions, and sometimes they'll throw the Word of God in there a little bit to make it sound like it's a Christian church, or make it sound like it's a Christian message, or make it sound like it's a message from God, when it's really a message from them. One of the things I love, that Chuck Smith, you know, 40-something years ago, implemented at Calvary Chapel, right, was that verse by verse, line by line, Robert calls it a safeguard. It keeps the pastors from puffing themselves up and leading people in their direction, where hopefully we stay grounded and centered on the Word of God as we go line by line, verse by verse, through the Holy Scriptures. It's a safeguard for us. And no pastor is without that temptation to make it about themselves. That's why the Bible warns for people, you know, hey, like, not everybody should be a teacher. Like, you'll be judged more severely. Like, be careful with this avenue that you take. Nikita and I went to a concert once. It was this worship concert. It was awesome. And the pastor, this mega church pastor, church, thousands of people, he got up and he spoke. He said, I'm going to give a short devotional message. And he got up and spoke for one hour one hour at, at Climate Pledge, and not one time did he speak about the Word of God. Just the whole time. Now this man is known to be a false teacher in the world around us, and we saw it firsthand on display in front of us. False teaching is a ploy of the enemy to keep people from Christ. Since the garden, where Satan distorted the Word of God to Eve, he manipulated her and manipulated the word of God to cause her to sin. He still does this. He does this today individually in us. See, the enemy lies in, in two kind of methods. One, in a broad swath of the church. He usually does this through like, you know, false teachers, pastors, these guys um, who, who, who get up and, and preach their opinion and don't preach the word of God. And then he does it quietly in your ear. It's like a whisper. And you know you've heard it before when you, when you 
and you've thought about sharing Jesus with someone and that whisper of a reason to not do it, the enemy is lying to you saying, oh, you're not ready, they're not going to hear it, they're not going to want it. Or, you know, I want to do this ministry, and the whisper says, no. Remember that sin you committed two days ago? Remember that sin you committed last night? Remember that thing you were doing? You are not ready or worthy to do what God wants you to do. You need to be a different person before God can use you. So we see the broad lies that happen to the church trying to pull hundreds or thousands of people astray, and then we see the ones that are coming from the enemy that are directed right at you. So how do we fight against these? He says fight the good fight. Some of you may be tempted to pick up a bat and say, let's go, okay? I see George is ready. He's like, give me a bat, let's do this. You know, uh, maybe a rock, maybe something. But he says this, this is, this is what Paul tells Timothy and how to fight. But as for you, O man of God, flee these things. Pursue righteousness, godliness, faith, love, steadfastness, gentleness. Fight the good fight of faith. Take hold of the eternal life to which you were called and about which you made a good confession in the presence of many people. He tells Timothy to take hold. Now this word take hold means to get a grip. It doesn't mean just like hold something, like I'm, I'm holding this. He's saying get a grip on eternal life. Now this doesn't mean like get a grip in a way that you might lose your eternal life. That's not what we're teaching. He's saying get a grip on the things that matter for eternal life, like the glory of the name of Jesus Christ, like the magnification of his name to all people in all generations. That is, that is what it means to take hold or get a grip on eternal life. But I want to I go back to the first verse in there, and I want to notice the word pursue. This is a special, special word here. See, we are to pursue righteousness, godliness, faith, love, steadfastness, and gentleness. Now, steadfastness could also be translated like unwavering or immovable. And notice that it's put next to the word gentleness. So there are some things in our, in our Christian faith that we hold with open hands. There are certain doctrines of the church that we hold with open hands, that you know your brothers and sisters in Christ that go to a different church may believe something completely different than you, and we're both still Christians. But then there are certain doctrines of the Christian church that we hold to like this, that there's no other name under heaven by which man can be saved except that of Christ Jesus. Acts 4.12. There's only one way. I am the way, the truth, and the life, he said. There's only one way to heaven. It's through Christ. And so we are unwavering in that, but we're also gentle. So you have this like stance of like, you know, you feel like you're holding things with fists, but then you're just loving people as you like hold their face and share the truth of Christ. When our son Thomas was a young boy, who he's back in Kentucky. I miss you, Thomas. Uh, he, he had trouble um, going to preschool. Okay, he had trouble going to, he used to go to a 24-hour fitness. Uh, I would work out, and he would go to the little daycare thing. And more than once, my workout was cut short because Thomas was a little rough and tumble. And so Nikita got in the habit. She named Thomas's hands, soft 
and gentle. So we'd be in the car, and we'd be about to uh, drop Thomas off at preschool, and we would always ask, so what are the names of your hands? He'd go, soft and gentle. You know? And it was like, okay. And then, you know, two hours later, we get a call, you need to come pick up your son. What happened? Not soft and gentle. <laughs> and so, so we think about this. Our approach, Thomas was this rough and tumble Young man, young boy, young baby, bigger than most kids. He had something inside of him, yet we were trying to get the gentleness to come across to others. So we have this thing. And this thing that we have is not like we did something for it. This truth that we have, the truth that we stand upon, is not a reason to yell at other people. I see some of these guys down at like a... You know, I've done a lot of street evangelism uh, back in the day with Ray Comfort down in California and some other guys, and, and we, we would be there, and it was always just this nice conversation talking about the, the, the love of Christ and how, but very direct, you're a sinner and you need to be saved. Your sin separates you from God. Jesus died on the cross for your sins. This is the path back to God, to a right relationship. I see some of these guys down at like, you know, I'm going to like a baseball game and they're screaming at people that they're, they're you know, you know you're, you're going to hell or you're doing this. And it's like, you know, you don't, you don't get to pick and choose the scriptures that you use and forget the other scriptures that tell you to be gentle. You know, it's the one time that I don't want to be gentle <laughs> is with the people who are doing these things. I want to scream at them and tell them, that they're not living the right life that God has called them to live. So, this pursuit is how we fight the good fight. We pursue godliness, righteousness, faith, love, and steadfastness. It always sounds weird to say pursue righteousness. But here's the deal. The cross, there's only, we don't leave our salvation at the cross. There's only one person in history that could leave their salvation at the cross. And that was the thief on the cross. Like, he, he had the quickest trip to heaven than anybody else in the world. I believe you'll be with me in paradise. Boom. For the rest of us, we have a life that we are called to live. And this life is pursuing godliness and righteousness. Pursuing souls for Jesus with the truth, the message of Christ, the gospel of peace. See, we are disciples if you call yourself a believer in Christ, you're a disciple of Christ. And a disciple of Christ, the disciples were to learn everything about their master. So a disciple, if you call yourself a disciple of Christ, this is where you learn about your master. It's right here. So we should know everything about it. You know, there was a term that was used in the first century about disciples. They would say to them, may the dust of your master be upon you. May you be covered in the dust of your teacher. So you were following so close that you were just covered in the dust as they walked through the streets proclaiming the good news. So may we look like Christ because of how much we are in his word. This is how we fight the good fight. And if we want to ask why, well, it's because he died for us. Ephesians 2 it's one of the best verses in Scripture when we talk about what was and what is. 
And you were dead in your trespasses and sins in which you once walked according to the course of this world, following the prince of the power of the air. So following the enemy that is now at work in the sons of disobedience, among whom once we all lived in the passions of our flesh, carrying out the desires of the body and the mind, and were by nature children of wrath, like the rest of mankind, but God, being rich in mercy, because of the great love with which he loved us, even when we were dead in our trespasses, made us alive together in Christ. By the grace you have been saved. So that's why. So we do it through this, pursuing Christ through the word of God, because the word has power, we fight the good fight. See, if we all know the scriptures, I mean, a church that knows the scriptures together is a powerful, powerful church. And I'm not, I'm talking about here and here. A church, a, a body of believers together that knows the word together is a powerful, powerful thing that Christ is going to use in a region. And then just in general, in the church across the world, a church that knows the word makes great advancements in the gospel. And that's what we're called to do is make advancements in the gospel. Go, therefore, and make disciples of all nations. It's the last thing he said before he left. It's pretty important. So there's a story that I want to share quickly. I like to, I like to equate Old Testament stories to New Testament truths. And David is a great example of someone who refused to listen to the lies and took hold of the eternal life. He had a grip on it. And he pursued the Lord. So the Philistines came out to fight the Israelites, and their champion was named Goliath. Okay, I think everybody knows this story. He stood six cubits in a span. He had a helmet of bronze. He was armed with a coat of mail. And a weight of the coat was 5,000 shekels of bronze. He had a bronze armor on his legs and a javelin of bronze slung between his shoulder. The shaft of his spear was like a weaver's beam. And the, and the spear's head weighed 600 shekels of iron. Goliath would come and he would call out to the people, I am here to battle you. You send out your best man to come against me, and whoever wins, the others will serve as slaves. So Goliath was, when we run the math on what we know, he was nine feet nine inches tall. His armor and helmet weighed 125 pounds. His spear weighed 15 pounds. David is just sent by his dad to bring his brother's food. Just, just the shepherd, you know, he's got like, I, I always imagine David coming here like, you know, the old pictures of like the hobos walking down the, the thing with like their, their stick and the, like the food hanging off the back, you know, like. And so David's coming, he's got cheese and bread, you know, some unleavened bread, he's bringing it here. And then he hears something. He hears Goliath taunting the people of the Lord. And he goes and he says, he says to Saul, let no man's heart fail because of him, because of Goliath. Your servant will go and he will fight the Philistine. <laughs> and Saul's like, okay, bro. Saul says to David, 
You are not able to go against this Philistine to fight him. You are but a youth. And he has been a man of war since his youth. See, this is how Satan lies. And sometimes he uses the people that are in our lives to tell these lies. Sometimes it's the people you love the most whispering the lies. It's a lie that he was too young. It's a lie that he was unprepared. Man, I used to remember as a new believer, man, if you knew me in high school, you would be, how in the world could God change somebody like that? I lived for everything that I could of my flesh. I didn't care about anybody else. I was, I was, the, I was the poster boy of narcissism. And then, and then I became a Christian. Because that's how it works. God saves you in an instant. And I was saved, and I was telling everybody, I went about telling everybody, hey, Jesus saved me, he wants to save you. And I was like, you know, I was like the gospel, I was like the, the Samaritan woman, I'd gone into, back into Samaria, and I'm just telling everybody about Jesus, and they're all like, dude, we know you. This message you are, give, give it up, in a week, this will be gone. And then, you know, you know what's really funny? I don't really like Amy Grant that much, but there are, I, I, don't, I don't not like Amy Grant. Like, nothing wrong with Amy Grant. I, I'm not like a, I'm not like a, 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 what would be a Granty. I'm not like, you know, a follower of Amy Grant, like Swifty, Granty, if you followed me on that, young people, thank you. Thank you, Finn. Um, so, but there was, a, there was a song she used to sing. She used songs she used to sing. It said, when they see the change in you, don't expect them to applaud. Just keep your eyes on him and tell yourself you become a work of God. And I was like, that was my anthem. That was, I was like, me and Amy Grant, I was just like singing these things, man. It was like my jam. And it meant everything to me. Because everybody was telling me, my, even, even like the people very closest to me were like, nah, this, isn't, this can't be real. Praise the Lord it was. So David explains. He says, I killed a lion and a bear. And Saul's like, oh, okay. You know? And so Saul, what Saul does is he says, okay, I'm going to clothe you in all of my armor. And so David puts on all this stuff, and he's like, you know, he's a boy wearing a man's armor. You know? It doesn't work. And it's another lie that Satan tells, is that you have to be this certain way, you have to have these certain things before you can teach and preach the word of God, before you can defend, before you can fight the good fight, you have to be a certain way. And he says, that's a lie. That's false. And David just goes ahead. And David yells out to the Philistine, you come to me with a sword and a spear and with a javelin, but I come to you in the name of the Lord of hosts, the God of the armies of Israel whom you have defiled. This day the Lord will deliver you into my hand. I will strike you down and cut off your head, and, and I will give the dead bodies of the hosts of the Philistines this day to the birds of the air and the wild beasts of the earth, that all the earth may know that there is a God in Israel." And then, here's the best part. It says that Goliath came out to fight. He's like, oh, this little puny dude, you know? And David ran to meet him. So David's like, here we go. He's got five smooth stones <laughs> and a piece of string. 
And David's sprinting to meet him because David trusted the Lord. David knew that the battle had already been won. Our battle has already been won. When we fight the good fight, we are victorious in Christ. This is not like a, it's not up, it's not up to, we're not going to rock, paper, scissors to see who wins. We have victory. The Jews, they believe the lie. They were all shaking in their armor. They believed the lies. David did not believe the lies. David had a singular focus. David stood when others wouldn't. He didn't back down from the fight. David was willing to fight for the truth. My question for you, church, our body of believers, are we ready to fight? Are you willing to stand with the word of God, with the word of truth, when the world tries to tell you that we can decide our own truths? Are you willing and ready to stand and say there is one truth? And it's the truth of Scripture. Because those are the people that I want to do life with. I want to walk side by side with people who look at this and say, this is the truth of God. And here's the beautiful thing, and here's where I'll finish, is that God gives us every single thing that we need. He tells us in the book of Ephesians chapter 6 to put on the armor of God. And these aren't things that we have to go on a quest to find. We don't have to go shopping for the armor of God. The armor of God is ours. He says, finally, be strong in the Lord and in his mighty power. Put on the full armor of God so that you can take your stand against the devil's schemes. For our struggle is not against flesh and blood, but against the rulers, against the authorities, against the powers of this dark world, and against the spiritual forces of evil in the heavenly realms. Therefore, put on the full armor of God, so that when the day of evil comes, you may be able to stand your ground. And after you have done everything to stand, stand firm then with the belt of truth buckled around your waist, with the breastplate of righteousness in place and with your feet fitted with the readiness that comes from the gospel of peace. In addition to all this, take up the shield of faith, which, which you can extinguish all the flaming arrows of the evil one. So when he whispers those things into your ears, that you have the shield of faith, and you're like, nah, man, not today. Not today. In addition to all this, take up the shield of faith, which you can extinguish the flaming arrows of the evil one. Take the helmet of salvation and the sword of the Spirit, which is the word of God. And pray in the spirit on all occasions with all kinds of prayers and requests. With this in mind, be alert and always keep on praying for the Lord's people. You have made known to me the path of life. In your presence there is fullness of joy and at your right hand there are pleasures forever. This is not an empty fight. This is not an empty thing with no reward. We fight the good fight. We stand firm. We work out our salvation with fear and trembling. And there's a promise that in his presence, there is fullness of joy. So this year, church, as we go in, this is the last day of the last year. As we go into this year, let us be resolved together to fight the good fight. Let us be resolved together to dig into the word more than we have ever done before in our lives. Because it's here, 
It's here that we pursue righteousness, godliness, love, steadfastness, and gentleness. And when we do that, we're going to change this region. The people around will recognize and they will see that the God of Israel is here. Let's pray. Lord Jesus, we thank you. Thank you for your word. We thank you that we get to dig deep. Everything that you want us to know about you is revealed in Scripture. We know that there is so much more. We know from Deuteronomy that there, the secret things belong to the Lord our God, but the things revealed belong to us and to our children forever. We thank you for the word. We thank you for the purity of it. Lord, I pray if there's anybody here this morning that has yet to come to the cross, that today is the day of salvation. I pray that they would recognize their sin keeps them from a right relationship with Jesus. But through Jesus' life as the perfect Lamb of God and his death on the cross, his blood now covers their sins and they can be white as snow. Lord, give us this peace inside of us, this peace that surpasses all understanding. And as we seek your word and as we seek your truth, Lord, may we be encouraged to fight the good fight. Give us the power. Give us the strength. Help us to put on the full armor of God that you have given us. Lord, we love you and praise you. Amen.